Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I am Michael Kingswood, retired naval officer, Christian, dad, and writer extraordinaire. I mostly focus on science fiction and fantasy, but I've been known to write just about everything under the sun, including the occasional romance. The purpose of this podcast is to share my stories with you, the reading slash listening public. So sit back and relax, because I'm going to tell you the story. Hey friends, I'm Michael Kingswood and it's story time. And uh, it's Saturday. It's time for Story Saturday. It's a little later than I planned to be getting this out today because <laughs> things have taken a little longer than I thought. It's been an interesting week. Uh, so as you guys know, I uh, make a bunch of money rideshare driving and uh, took my my business car in for 100,000 mile maintenance on Wednesday. Uh, that was interesting because I bought this car last July with 52,000 miles on it. And here it is like, holy cow, put a 50,000 miles on it in less than a year. Well, I made a lot of money with it in less than a year, but still. Uh, but, you know, it's been a lot of wear and tear, and there's some, been a bunch of bumps and bangs and bruises and knickknacks through those 50,000 miles and I was like, you know, there's probably going to be some things to fix. And the the 75k maintenance, the they said the brakes were about halfway and I've been wondering about the suspension. So I took it all in and I was like, "All right, take a look at it." <laughs> it turns out, yep, sure enough, need brakes on both front and rear, the front suspension shot and uh, a couple other things need doing and all of a sudden the uh <laughs> the maintenance cost that was going to be Three figures is now well into a four. <laughs> and uh, that's painful, but it is what it is. You need, the damn thing needs to work right, right? So we got to do what we got to do. But meanwhile, the car has been in the shop. Uh, they got, they've been getting the work done on it. These last few days should get it back on Monday or Tuesday. So Thursday and yesterday and today, no driving to do. And I've had the kids around. And we've been doing kids stuff. But also, but I was like, well, shoot, I'm just gonna have to hit the uh, the writing side of things a lot. And yeah, I've done a, got a lot of publishing work done these last three days, um, revamping some stuff, uh, getting some things. Uh, a lot of it is uh, fulfillment stuff for the stores from the Great Challenge Kickstarter. Decided to go with Backer Kit for that first time using them. Um, I like what they do, like what they do, and I like the upselling side of it, mo money. But also, it it's easier for me to just let them handle all the surveys and let them handle all the. I give them the files and all this electronic files, and you know, so I don't have to send out emails myself. Don't have to segment my email list and manage everything. Yeah, you know, it's worth. It's probably going to be worth the small amount of money for this. It's like they're going to charge like 17 bucks. It's an $855 campaign. They're charging like 17 bucks. And then if anything, sales go through them, they take a small piece of that too. It's like, okay, it's not that much and save me time. Cool. But, uh, but it's first time using it. As with everything, there's a learning curve to get it set up. And so it's like, okay, cool. Been working on that and, uh, redoing some, uh, you know, some audiobook stuff and, redoing some covers uh because the glimmer veil books i did the the new covers for all of them 
but it was I've only updated them on the ebook side, so I had to redo the print covers. And there was this. Getting ready for this. Uh, this uh, reading story Saturday for today has been uh, you know delayed until this morning and afternoon, which is why this is going to be going out this evening. Um, so that's cool. The other thing I've been doing is learning how um, multiple streaming live stream things work. I set myself up a Rumble account and got all the videos ported over there from YouTube. And now I'm trying to decide if I want to bother paying money to be able to multi-stream while well, I don't have much of an audience or wait. And we'll, I'll probably just end up forking out the money because it's not that much money. I might as well do it. Might as well go for the gusto from the start. But I've been learning how it works. That's why I haven't done the live stream thing in the last week. Is just because I've been investigating that and seeing you know, how I want to get things set up. Also, I've been deciding on name for the <laughs> for the continuing stream. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. So that's what's going on around here. Um, lots of writing work. Uh, how about I chew on my tongue a little bit more and say that, yes, that's all the segue into this story. This week's story is story number eight from Glories, from Stories from the Great Challenge. It's called Smoke and Embers. It's uh, another romantic story. I did a few of these in this, uh, in this year of stories. Uh, hadn't done very many in the past, and uh, this is one of the the ones that I did here. This one I would have decided to experiment with the whole floating viewpoint thing that people like uh, like Herbert does in Dune and like uh, Nora Roberts does a lot in the uh, as opposed to the 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 one hundred percent third person or first person point of view and you're sticking in that person's head not moving we're kind of do fluid jumps around and uh, it's a more advanced thing something i haven't tr hadn't tried out before a couple of stories in this challenge and i think it worked out okay you guys let me know what what you think um yeah well, we'll get to it now uh again smoking embers i wrote it i am reading it i'm not a voice actor sorry I'll touch you on the flip side. Wood smoke filled the air, despite the stiff breeze blowing in from the east. It seemed to rise from everywhere, and never mind the determined efforts of the fire department personnel who had labored for hours to contain the fire. Where once this had been a non-denominational neighborhood chapel, white and pure exterior finish, stained glass windows showing Bible scenes going down both long walls, an unadorned steeple pointing towards heaven, now it was a ruin. Blackened timbers leaning against each other at odd angles as though trying to prop each other up and stop a total collapse. Too late for that. The last team of firefighters in their fireproof coveralls and breathing masks was going through the rubble with axes and pry bars. What framing hadn't fallen in the blaze itself they were prying apart to separate fuel and prevent any reflash. Before long there wouldn't even be a charred memory remaining of the peaceful beauty of the place. Pete stuffed his hands into the pockets of his slacks and stood at the tee of the concrete walkway that connected the entranceway leading to the chapel's front door to the sidewalk running down this once quiet suburban street and watched the firemen go about the last of their business. He resolutely did not look behind himself. He didn't need to. He knew the scene there perfectly. The wedding party sitting dejectedly on the curb across the street from the chapel, the bride's dress blackened and charred, her eyes puffy red from crying as much from grief as from the stinging smoke 
The others were just as must, but she seemed the symbol that represented the crowd. Eyes staring not at the scene and the ruined chapel, but at him. Their accusations tore into his back like lances hurled by Olympic track and field champions, unerring and true, and completely deserved. Patrolmen would be mingling with them, taking their statements. Other blue uniformed personnel were hard at work elsewhere around the scene as well, erecting a cordon, engaging in crowd control, escorting the immediate neighbors from their houses until they were certain the immediate danger was past. The red, blue, and white flashing lights on top of the patrol cruisers at each end of the block seemed brighter now, but it was just that the afternoon was beginning to fade into evening, the sky above slowly taking on the red-orange of sunset. And Pete just watched, his mind replaying the event over and over, searching for something, anything he could have done differently to avoid. The crunching of gravel beneath shoe soles on the street behind him advertised another person's close approach, interrupting Pete's thoughts. A second later, a man in his mid-fifties, stick thin and four or five inches taller than Pete, stepped into the right side of Pete's peripheral vision. He had on a cheap gray suit, even cheaper than Pete's if that was possible, with a solid royal blue tie, and he had his mostly gray hair tied back in a ponytail at the nape of his neck. His bushy mustache mostly hid his upper lip, but it couldn't conceal the displeased scowl he wore. Inwardly, Pete groaned. Lieutenant, he said, without looking at him. Lieutenant Sykes looked sidelong at his leave detective and scowled. Pete looked like hell. He had black smudges all over his suit, hands, and face. His sleeve was torn halfway up to the elbow, and it looked like his right shoe had a hole in it as well. But worst was the expression on his face. His eyes were reddened from the smoke, but wide, his jaw slack, like someone who couldn't believe what he's looking at. Sykes cleared his throat. Got a call from the hospital. It's not good. Charlie, Pete interrupted him. I know. His voice was toneless. Dead. Sykes let it drop, nodding. From what the doc had said, there really had not been much of a chance. When Charlie was rushed from the scene earlier, he had significant burns over 60 or 70% of his body, and probably massive smoke inhalation as well. Pete had seen him, helped smother the flames on his partner's body. Of course he had known how little chance he had to survive. The lieutenant looked away from Pete and back toward the remains of the chapel. Such a waste, in every sense. Sudden anger flooded through him. Intellectually, he knew it was a defense mechanism to ward off the sorrow over Charlie's passing, but still... God damn it, Pete, what the hell happened? Beside him, Pete shrugged. Garza broke contain. Ended up here. You know the rest. Sykes ground his teeth to avoid really lashing out at the man. He knew Pete wasn't really the source of his anger, and it wouldn't do any good to take it out on him. All the same, that was a bullshit answer, and they both knew it. You're sure Garza didn't make it out, was all Sykes said in reply. Pete nodded, and the lieutenant grunted, then nodded approvingly. He wasn't fooling anyone. Pete knew he bore the blame for this debacle, and the fact that the perp went up in his own fire didn't make up for anything. Didn't make up for Charlie. Charlie's screams rang in Pete's ears, blotting out everything else from the scene. Pete almost broke to think of his friend of so many years. But he realized the lieutenant was saying something else, and he forced himself back to present. What? Sykes said, going to be some high-level attention on this. He gestured toward the still-smoldering chapel, then around at the neighborhood, which, while not filled with McMansions per se, had still been a well-heeled place that never had a hint of trouble touch it. Until now. Probably some decent political contributions came from this place. Pete didn't bother holding back his groan this time. Sykes nodded agreement. Not sure who's going to be heading up the investigation yet, but I'll let you know when I do. Pete took the words in, but didn't really process them. He just nodded. The lieutenant laid his hand on Pete's shoulder and gave it a little squeeze. Not much more you can do here, Pete, and you'll want to be fresh when the investigation starts. Go home. Get a few days rest. His tone didn't hold malice or accusation, but Pete knew it was there all the same. 
He'd seen this coming, just hoped it wouldn't come so soon. Sighing, he brushed back his suit coat and took hold of his holstered sidearm. It took a second of working back and forth to ease the clip holding it onto his belt. Then he took the whole unit and held it out to Sykes. The lieutenant turned to look at him fully, his eyes widening slightly. He raised his hands, palm out, in a peacemaking gesture. Not what I meant at all, Pete. You're still on the job. I just... Pete shook his head and pressed the weapon into Sykes' open left hand. Then with his free hand, he fished his badge wallet out and pushed it into Sykes' right. That's bullshit and we both know it, he said. He looked Sykes in the eye and pressed the items toward him, harder. The lieutenant resisted both the look and taking of the items. I'm done, Pete said. And he let the piece and the badge go and turned away. Sykes had to move quickly to avoid letting them both fall to the ground. He looked down to make sure the gun in particular was safe. By the time he raised his eyes again, Pete had vanished into the crowd of onlookers on the other side of the street. Damn it, Sykes said. In all the years Pete had been coming to her bar, Melissa had never seen him tie one on the way he had tonight. She couldn't blame him. She'd seen the story in the news and immediately recognized Charlie's face when it popped up on the screen. She had spent many a fun night serving beers to the two of them and sometimes also their buddies in the division, and she thought well of Charlie. But Pete was the real regular. This was going to crush him. It was almost crushing her. She had to have one of her servers take over for a few minutes when she saw the news so she could go back into her office to cry it out of her system. But now it was getting on toward closing time and Pete was going nowhere. He sat at his usual place at the corner of the bar opposite the entrance, nursing a Michelob that had long since gone warm from when he first ordered it two hours ago. He had made up for the beer by swilling shots, but she'd cut him off of those an hour ago and he just sat, staring into his drink and occasionally making to lift it to his lips, but never quite getting it there. He was wasted. But that was not the real thing dragging him low. The last of her other customers left through the front door and Sheila, one of the two servers she had on staff on Wednesdays, locked it behind the guy. She was young, college age, though she wasn't in school, and perky, just like Melissa always tried to hire in the waitstaff. And she had on the required the cock and bull t-shirt, with her logo of both animals arm wrestling for a pint of beer on the breast. Melissa caught her eye as she left the door, and Sheila gestured questioningly toward Pete. Melissa waved her off. This was her job, and not just because it was her place. Pete was special. He was tracing his fingertip along the rim of his glass as she walked over toward him, and for a moment he looked like a lost kid. He'd always had a baby face. She'd been shocked to see he was almost 30 the first time she'd carded him way back. She didn't want to think how many years ago that was. She'd been married then, or she might have made a play for him, cute and cocky as he was. But that was before Carl had turned into a cast-iron jerk and an abusive drunk, and she still had her scruples. And then, once she was free again, Pete had shacked up with Helen, so that was that. Except he and Helen had gone pear-shaped about eight months ago, and it was turning into one hell of a fire and brimstone-style divorce. She didn't want to be the rebound. But more, she didn't want to get caught in the middle of that crazy drama. So as she eased her way toward him, she reminded herself sternly that no matter how she might fall seamlessly into the gray blue of his eyes, or the way his slightly off-kilter smile always made little butterflies take flights in her belly, she was strictly acting as a friend tonight, one who knew and understood his pain. It helped that she felt it too, though she knew nowhere near as profoundly as he did. Pete, she said as she reached him, it's closing time, hon. Pete heard her voice, but it was like a whisper against the whirlwind. He looked at the beer, but didn't see it, traced his finger along the glass, but didn't feel it. He only heard Charlie's screams, only saw the skin pull away from his arms as Pete tried to drag him farther from the inferno that had tried to clean them both. Pete stopped running his finger on the glass and turned his hand so he could look at his palm. The unburnt, unbroken flesh of his hand, not even a scratch on it despite what had happened earlier. 
How could there not even be a scratch on it? He looked away, casting about on the gray-black polished granite of the bar top. Hadn't he seen a knife somewhere there? Pete picked it up in his other hand and drove the point of it down toward that palm with his undeservedly unbroken skin. It was going to hurt, but he didn't care. He wanted it to. Needed it to, if only to eclipse that other pain in his chest. He gritted his teeth in anticipation and was denied. Something forced his hand aside and he lost grip on the knife. It skittered across the bar, uselessly. Pete felt the snarl of rage boiling up within him. Then pressure on both sides of his head forced him to look away and he saw the yellow-brown eyes that he remembered in his dreams. The eyes that had kept him coming back to this bar despite its bad food and at best average ambiance. Even in his drunken state, and he knew well and good he was drunk, just not drunk enough, he would have known those eyes. Hey, Melissa, he slurred. He tried to smile but failed as suddenly the barrier he had been building up all night fell beneath the empathy he saw in those lovely eyes. He began to bawl, though his pride shouted at him to stop. He howled and wailed and wept, and at some point he passed out. But throughout, he felt the warmth of her arms around his shoulders, and he clung to that feeling as the dreams took him. When he woke up, Pete at first thought he was dead, and in hell. But after a moment, he decided no, God could never be so cruel as to consign someone to feeling this way for all eternity, so he must be alive, but really fucking hungover. His head felt about ten sizes too small to encase the throbbing that threatened to burst his skull. For a little while, he found himself identifying with Zeus at Athena's birth. Then he sat up, and the entire contents of his stomach wanted to come out up into his pajamas. He blinked, confusion forcing the nausea away, but not the headache or the shakes. Pajamas? He never wore pajamas. What the hell? He looked around. This wasn't his bedroom. This wasn't even his house. The paint job was all wrong, all soft, almost pink tones and warmth, whereas he stuck with the drab white that the landlord had painted between the previous tenant and him. It was a nice room, though, he had to admit. The bed was small, just a twin, though a four-poster, but the sheets were slick cotton, probably at least 200 grain from the feel of them. Egyptian? The other furniture was well-made and appeared to be real wood, not particle board. There was a potted plant in the corner that was almost as tall as the ceiling, eight foot, and was blooming with some sort of red-pink flowers. It gave off a pleasant musky odor, but if anything else had convinced him he was not home, it was that. No plant could survive more than a week in his company. Grunting, he swung his legs off the bed, and they sank into a thick white throw rug that covered the darkly polished hardwood floor. It was like stepping into a cloud, it was so soft. Where the hell was he? He managed to hobble over to the door, only partially successful in ignoring the pounding in his head, and opened it, then stepped through. Beyond was a great room, though perhaps it was a little small for that name, but it had the white couch and matched stuffed chairs around a glass coffee table in front of a TV that all living rooms acquire, and off to the left a walnut-stained dining table set for six. And directly ahead, a kitchen set up with white granite counters, gray shelving, and stainless steel appliances and sink. And leaning behind the counter, reading a newspaper with one elbow resting on the counter and her fist supporting her chin, dressed in a set of flower-patterned pajamas that somehow were sexier than any lingerie Helen had ever deigned to wear for him, and not very often at that, was Melissa. Auburn-haired, yellow-brown-eyed Melissa with her fit, slender body and small, perky boobs. He'd dreamed about her for years, but he'd only thought he dreamed of her last night. Had they... He glanced down at the pajamas he was wearing. No, clearly not. He cleared his throat. Good morning? Melissa looked up when he spoke, surprised making her drop the newspaper onto the countertop. She had been reading a detailed story of what had happened to Pete and his partner yesterday. 
or as detailed as the police department would allow any news article to be, and she had not heard him come in, engrossed as she was. She straightened and saw the bags under his blood-stained eyes, the greenish cast to his skin. Inwardly, she winced in the sympathy for the hangover he must be feeling. But he did fill out Carl's old pajamas pretty well. He had kept in good shape over the years, unlike many cops. She found herself growing warm looking at him, but had to force that feeling down. This was not the time, and she had no right. Well, she did, now that he and Helen were split, but she did want to get involved in that situation. Did she? You were hitting the whiskey pretty hard last night, she said, to distract herself from the train of thought as much as to inquire from him. How you feeling? Need some coffee? She gestured toward the end of her countertop, beneath the overhanging cabinets, where a coffee maker sat, warming a two-thirds full pitcher. Pete glanced away from her toward the coffee and smiled slightly. Considering his probable condition, it was an ear-to-ear -ear grin. He nodded. Thanks. As he headed over to the life-giving fluid, he said, How did I get here? Melissa felt herself flushing, despite having done nothing untoward. She looked back down at the newspaper as he reached for the coffee pitcher. You were in no condition to drive last night, and I don't know where you live, so she left the rest unsaid. Pete had to hand it to her. She brewed a mean cup of coffee. He considered sugar and creamer, but decided this was no morning to lessen the shock, so he took it black, and was pleasantly surprised by the deep, rich flavor. He immediately felt more alert, though his head still throbbed. Turning away from the pot, he saw her looking back down at the newspaper. Her cheeks were red like she was embarrassed. That intrigued him. You could have gotten me an Uber. She looked back up at him, and her lips compressed slightly. And who would have gotten you into your house? He nodded, conceding the point. He took another swallow of the coffee and stepped over to where she was standing alongside the counter. Setting the coffee cup down on the granite, he plucked at his pajama top with his left hand and jiggled it, meaningfully. He raised an eyebrow, and only after doing it did he realize it was the same thing he did when he was trying to non-verbally press a suspect into talking. He felt a flush of shame at that. Pete's accusing eyebrow made Melissa flush all the more, but she found she could not look away from him. Those gray-blue eyes were locked on hers, probing, and she felt drawn in by them. Lower down, she ached for him to do a different sort of probing. She stiffened and turned away, forcing her thoughts back in order while she chided herself for being so foolish. Melissa opened the refrigerator door to mask her slip. I asked Jim, my next-door neighbor, to take care of that. She pulled open the crisp and fresh drawer and withdrew half a cantaloupe. Pete wasn't sure what he saw in her eyes before she turned away, but he was unprepared for that bit of news. Jim? Who the hell was Jim? Was he... Melissa turned back toward him and held up a gallon-sized Ziploc bag that held half a cantaloupe. Want some? Pete nodded. Sure. He paused for a second while she set the melon down on the countertop, then said, Who's Jim, your neighbor? She turned eyes that twinkled teasingly at him. He's straight. You don't have to worry. That was not what he meant at all. Melissa was relieved that her remark had set him back on his heels, and then she felt ashamed for feeling that. But damn it all, she focused on the cantaloupe, pulling the cutting board out from the shelf where she kept it, selecting the right knife and testing its edge, and all the while aware of Pete's eyes on her and unable to stop the warmth that flowed through her at that knowledge. Finally, in desperation, she said the worst possible thing. The Times did a story on you and Charlie, and she immediately wished she had not. Melissa's words hit Pete like a bullet, and immediately he recalled everything from the previous day. He turned away from her, pressing his palms down on the countertop. The newspaper was laid out where she had dropped it. The headline was plainly visible. Hero Cop Killed in Fire. Then below it, in smaller letters that nevertheless burned into his soul, Partner Accused of Negligence. Negligence? He grabbed up the paper and hauled it up in front of his face. Headlines were almost always bullshit. Clickbait, to use the modern term. They can't have meant... But there it was. 
Sources in the police department have indicated that procedures for securing suspected perpetrators may have been violated. Though the sources did not specifically name him, Detective Peter O'Donnell, the victim's partner, has been strongly implicated as contributing to Detective Argento's death through his improper actions. Motherfucker, Pete said and slammed the paper bank down onto the counter. Melissa jumped at the sound of Pete's outburst and dropped the knife she was holding. A second later, she yelped as pain flared from her foot. She looked down and saw the knife stuck point first into her hardwood floor. Its cutting edge had sliced through the side of her big toe as it landed. Son of a bitch, she cried and had to force herself to not pull her foot away and make it worse. Instead, she bent over to pick up the knife first. Pete was about ready to scream at the ceiling when Melissa cried out in pain. All thoughts of his predicament fled as concern for her flooded him, and he rounded on her, in time to see her rise, her cutting knife in her hand, and its edge red. He looked down and saw the big toe on her left foot had a gash on the side and blood was flowing out onto her finely polished floor. Oh geez, he said and straightened, reaching for a paper towel. Her hand landed on his as they both grabbed it at the same time. Pete's eyes turned onto hers, and Melissa felt the pain in her toe retreat beneath the electricity of his touch, and again she felt pulled into his eyes, his beautiful blue-gray eyes. I'm sorry, Pete said hoarsely, and Melissa realized their bodies were very close together now, his chest almost pressed up against her breasts. Not your fault, she said in a nonchalant tone, but Pete barely registered. All he could see was her eyes filling his vision. All he could hear was the sudden strong pounding of his heart. All he could feel was the sudden heat on his cheeks from where her breath impacted his skin. As though guided by some outside force, he leaned in toward her. She felt him come in, and every portion of her being willed him to, to kiss her, to take her, except for her mind. This was not right, not now, while he was so broken. His lips was about to touch her, and she turned away. Pete felt like he stumbled forward a step when she suddenly wasn't there, even though the only part of him that had moved was his head. All the same, he had to catch himself to stop from falling over. And then she was gone, moving away from him toward a door he hadn't seen before on the opposite side of the room. I've got some band-aids in the bathroom, she said over her shoulder, without looking at him. Then the door closed behind her, and he was left all alone with a bloody knife and a raging hard-on. Charlie's funeral was three days later, and Pete felt like an outcast throughout the entire proceeding. He wore his dress blues like everybody did. He stood in formation with the rest of his division. He watched as the mayor presented Hillary with the folded flag and recited the scripted and off-spoken words of condolence. He saluted as the riflemen fired their shots. And through it all, nobody said a word to him. Not even Hillary, except for a fleeting thank you when he said how sorry he was. At least she returned the hug, but even that seemed hesitant, distant. It was like they had cast him adrift already, before he had even been tried, let alone convicted. Melissa watched from near the rear of the crowd, at the funeral's edge. She would not have missed it, no matter the circumstances. She'd known Charlie for a long time, and even though he wasn't close enough to truly be a friend, he was like Pete's brother, and Pete... Pete was special. She'd done a lot of thinking over the last few days, since she fled from him in near panic in her kitchen. She'd sat on her toilet seat in her bathroom for many long minutes, more than it would have taken to properly bandage her toe. Just sat there, thoughts churning, as she listened to his movement out in her living room. He had not groused or shouted. He had not made much noise at all. But after a few minutes, she heard her front door close, and only then had she dared put her head out and look around. He had not just wiped up the blood at the base of the counter. He had cleaned the entire trail she had led to the bathroom. And now, three days later, after three days of cursing herself for a fool for not giving him the comfort, the closeness that he had so clearly needed... She watched him go through the motions of duty and regulation, his pain obvious to anyone who would even bother to look at him. 
She felt that pain as though it was her own, and as the ceremony broke apart and he walked alone, away from the gathered people, she moved to follow him. Pete? The voice, so familiar he recognized it without any effort, brought Pete up short. He stopped and turned around. Alyssa stood there, in a long black dress that might have worked well as an evening gown, except that clearly she was in mourning. Her eyes were red and her mascara had run a bit. He was surprised for a second, then cursed himself for that feeling. She and Charlie had been friends. Of course she would mourn his passage. Hi, he said. He sounded awkward even to his own ears, and lame when he left it at that, but he really had no idea what else to say to her. Melissa looked into his eyes and saw the same pain she had seen before at her bar and then again in her kitchen, and she cursed herself again for leaving him alone these last few days. Surely Helen hadn't offered any comfort, not since she had revealed herself as the harpy Melissa had always feared she was. She looked down at the grass before Pete's mirror-shined shoes. I'm sorry. Pete said I'm sorry at the same time as he heard her say it, and he blinked. What did she have to be sorry for? He was the one who had taken her act of kindness and turned it into something awkward. She looked back up as he spoke, and her eyebrows rose in surprise. Again, as her eyes met, he found himself at a loss for words for a moment, so he was almost grateful when he heard a very familiar throat clearing to the left, and he turned to see Lieutenant Sykes standing there. The new arrival saved Melissa from a moment of uncertainty when everything she had planned to say flew away completely before the earnest expression on Pete's face and the deep feeling in his eyes. She looked to the side and saw Bill Sykes standing there and felt grateful relief at the reprieve. Sykes looked between Pete and the bartender from the cock and bull and what was her name? She was a looker, whatever it was, and thought perhaps he would have been better to wait until they'd conducted their business. But then he considered that maybe their business would take the rest of the day and all night, so he got down to his. Tearing his eyes away from the hottie, he looked at Pete and tried to put on a reassuring smile. Hey, Pete, he said. Hey, Lieutenant, Pete replied, wondering how much more trouble he was in. Sykes' expression was severe, almost stern. He hadn't even seen Sykes look like that when he was in the middle of chewing someone in a new ass. Sykes cleared his throat. I've had you on medical leave the last few days, he said, and Pete blinked in surprise. No one will question it, the lieutenant continued. He reached out with his left hand, and Pete saw the brown folded leather packet in his hand but you need to take this back. Pete knew what it was, but still his hand trembled when he reached out to take it. He flipped it open and felt his breath leaving his lungs in a sigh of relief. It was his badge wallet. Only then did he realize that it was relief he felt, and he froze in surprise. He had felt so certain the other day that he was done, but now he felt like the badge Lieutenant Sykes had given him back was the greatest gift in the world. He looked back at Sykes. Thanks. Sykes nodded curtly. Just don't let me hear any more of this I'm done bullshit. Don't matter what the news says. You're a good cop, one of the best I've known, and I'm here for you. He glanced aside toward Melissa, then he added, We all are. Sykes was relieved when Pete's handshake was the same strong, confident grasp he always used. He turned away, pausing only to give the bartender a look that he hoped she understood before he walked away. Pete watched his lieutenant go and felt a warmth inside that he hadn't experienced in days. He hadn't been cast out from among his brothers. They had his back after all. He found he was smiling slightly when he looked back at Melissa. The sight of his smile was too much. Melissa cast aside the words she'd been planning to say. Instead, she grabbed him by the shoulders, pulled him forward, and kissed him. Hard. They stood there together for a long time. When they finally parted, they each had to gasp for breath. Then they hurried back to her place. Okay, smoking embers. Hope you liked it. I, of course, enjoyed writing it. Reading it was a little bit of painful today because for some reason I've been stumbling all over my tongue all day and I had to redo it, some of these segments of the story, like six times. It was really tiresome. 
regardless, now you've got it. Hope you liked it. Um, tune back in next week on Saturday for the next story Saturday. That is going to be story number nine. Now, the interesting thing about story number nine from Stories from the Great Challenge is I did not actually write story number nine. It's called Hermes Kringle. I did not write it for this challenge. I wrote it later in the year 2020. Now, why is it in this collection? Because the story that I did write, um, which is called Lost on Cordon Station, as story number nine, is currently on submission to Writers of the Future, actually, and had been for the time frame when I was putting this out. And since I'm uh, making the big writing and publishing push thing here, I didn't want to screw around and wait for months for them to finish judging it. So I said, okay, we'll just replace Corden Station with Hermes Kringle. It was written in the same year, uh, just not, actually it was written the next year. Corden Station, I wrote it in 2019, and Hermes Kringle was near the end of 2020. Regardless, it's not like I yeah, pulled something from 10 years ago. It was same general time frame. And I figured one substitution wasn't bad. So that'll be next week. Um, it's a sci-fi story, uh, so I think you'll you'll dig that. Uh, yeah, that'll be fun. Also this week, I think I'm going to be recommencing the live streams. I keep going back and forth in my head if I want to keep with the 2.30 p.m. Pacific time thing or move it later. Problem with moving it later is there's a lot of stuff going on in my evenings and the kids have stuff and I gotta take and I have stuff and I gotta take schlep things back and forth. Um I could maybe do seven thirty, but I don't know, I, th- I kinda think two thirty is gonna end up being the best time for me just in general no matter what. Uh so jury's still out on that one we'll let everybody know um but yeah once that starts up again um come by and join me for that if you don't want to do that just join me next week on story saturday that's cool regardless do like subscribe tell all your friends go to michaelkingswood.com and sign up for my mailing list you can become a member of the site do a little small amount of financial support every little bit helps Go to michaelkingswood.com slash store. You can get to the web store to buy all of my books in all the formats you like. And, of course, you can find the stuff in all the other you know, big retailers, too. But it's better to come directly to me because I get more money and have more control that way. And you get to more directly support the artist that you like. As opposed to going through a middleman who takes a cut. Hmm. Up to you. That's it. Uh, hope you enjoyed this one. Talk to you next time. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. For information on my books, visit michaelkingswood.com or visit my web store at ssnstorytelling.com. My books are all available through all the various e-tailers, but buying direct from me nuts me the most profit. For information on new releases and other special deals in the future, sign up for my newsletter on my website. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyrighted Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music is copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>